This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're talking about the latest in SPACs and whether that hot streak can continue through 2021. We're joined by Olympia McNerney of our Equity Capital Markets and Alternative Capital Markets Group in our Investment Banking Division. Olympia, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Jake. So let's start by looking back. Last year was a banner year for SPACs. They represented a huge amount of the IPO volume in 2020. We saw what was once a bit of an outlier of a product in capital markets start to dominate the markets, and it happened overnight. So what were the factors that contributed to 2020 activity volumes and why SPACs in particular sort of took the spotlight? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that we continue to get over and over. You know, what's going on? Why has the market changed? Is this here to stay? Just to put it into context, I mean, there were north of 200 IPOs priced last year for SPACs alone, more than $100 billion of capital raised. Today, there are more than 250 SPACs on the hunt. And when you multiply you know, that capital that's been raised and what could be deployed to M&A, it could potentially represent more than $500 billion of M&A. So clearly, this is something that is going to change the landscape, not just for companies coming public, but also in M&A over the next two years. So it's really interesting to see how this has exploded in particular over the last 12 months, like we've never seen before. So what's changing? You know, the last time we spoke, we spent a lot of time on the quality of the sponsors. And that really continues. You know, we went from a small number of high-quality sponsors to today, an incredibly high number of high-quality sponsors. And we're seeing that in terms of the terms of the SPAC. So the warrant coverage in the SPACs. We're seeing that in terms of the investors that are buying SPACs. They're all looking at these sponsors and saying, these are people that I want to put my money alongside of. So that I think you know has continued. But what I really think is gaining a lot of traction, if I had to put it into one or two words, I would say flexibility and optionality. This is a product that is flexible. And when I think about companies wanting to control their destiny a little bit, that flexibility is appealing, right? So to be able to negotiate with some SPACs in a bespoke manner, to be able to control terms, to be able to potentially put earnouts in place, right? We've seen a lot of IPOs priced that have traded up very significantly in the aftermarket. And so to be able to capture some of that back in terms of an earnout where a company could potentially earn higher values as a stock moves higher and higher, you know, that clearly is flexibility that you don't necessarily have in an IPO. Like I said, control your destiny. I mean, a SPAC is someone that you're partnering with. They're likely to be on your board. They're going to become an investor in your company. And so having that control over who you're doing business with, having a little bit more control in terms of the marketing process, right? We've talked about this before. Most SPACs will go out and will raise pipes concurrent with the business combination. And so being able to really spend a couple of weeks talking with investors, sharing more information, sharing projections, doing a deeper level of diligence with investors, all of that can be incredibly appealing to a company. So it's not to say that a SPAC doesn't come with costs. But like I said, if I had to really boil it down to one word, it's flexibility. And I think this is a product that will continue to appeal to companies because of that flexibility that it offers relative to some traditional paths, whether it be IPO or M&A. 
So Olympia, there was a period in the fall where it seemed for a moment, at least, that there was a little bit of SPAC fatigue. How did you help clients steer through that pause in the market? And what's your view on the sustainability of the product? There was. It was an interesting moment in time because the equity markets continued to grind higher and higher. And, you know, in complete contrast, we had a SPAC market that all of a sudden came, you know, effectively to a halt. And, you know, the way I think about it is that this is normal. Like all markets, we will see periods where they are wide open and periods where things slow down. And it really came down to just too much supply, too much supply, not enough demand and people feeling overwhelmed by that supply. And so, you know, call it September, October and into early November, the response was, and the Goldman Sachs response was, we need to slow things down. We need to listen to investors and take that feedback and really kind of slow our supply. Now, granted, we are a slice of the market. We're not everyone. There were certainly others that were out there that were, you know, kind of going and pricing a deal at any cost. But eventually, I think the rest of the market listened and IPO volumes came down quite meaningfully. The other issue away from the SPAC IPOs was the number of pipes being raised. So not surprisingly, when you unleash 200 plus SPACs, they go and find deals. And then we have a tremendous amount of pipe raising in the market. And so... You know, last year during this time frame, at any one point in those couple months, it felt like there were at least 20 pipes in the market. I mean, that is just an enormous number when you think about just how many companies are coming public in a given week. And so those pipes were struggling. The market was fatigued. And when deals were announcing, they weren't trading well. What eventually happened is because the supply slowed, it really allowed the indigestion to work its way through the market. We finally got to a point where the pipes were smaller, they were oversubscribed, the business combinations that announced actually traded incredibly well, and all of a sudden we saw capital recycle. And so that capital recycling was absolutely critical in reopening the market. And it's interesting, as we moved into December, the tone felt quite different. We were hearing from a lot of investors that they felt refreshed, they had new capital to put to work, that they were excited for 2021. We saw... I mean, probably 10 to 15 business combinations that traded incredibly well on announcement. And I think the last thing that we saw is as this product gains more traction, just the scope of investors that are looking at the product, both the front-end IPO and the pipes, it's just it's expanding exponentially. And so you put all of that together, sitting here in 2021, the market feels very, very healthy. You know, this week alone, it's only Wednesday, and there are many, many facts that are in the market, deals that are well oversubscribed. And I think it comes back to that point that capital is available, that new investors are interested. Without a doubt, with 80 stacks that are on file, we will hit another speed bump at some point this year. But right now, the market is efficient and it's working the way it should. And the product feels incredibly robust. So sometimes, Olympia, in the discussion around SPACs, we hear a lot about the issuers of the SPAC and about the targets. Talk a little bit about the investor base. Is it the same as you might see in an IPO or how has it evolved over the past year? Yeah, it's a great question. It's actually really evolved over the last 12 months. It used to be a very niche group of investors that bought most of the SPACs. And of course, not surprising when we go from you know, a 10 to $15 billion market to a $100 billion market, there obviously has to be movement in the investor base, or there's no way that 200 SPAC IPOs can get done. You know, as we sit here today, what strikes me is how broad the investor universe is that is looking at SPAC. So it is your traditional SPAC investors. So many of the convert ARB funds, a lot of the multi-strat hedge funds, 
But just, I mean, the floodgates have opened in terms of what I would call traditional mutual funds that are now looking at the product and saying, it's hard to ignore, right? When something becomes 50% of the overall IPO market and companies that these funds would want to buy if they were going public regular way are going SPAC, I think the product becomes hard to ignore. So the investor base has really, really shifted over the last 12 months. And it doesn't look exactly like a traditional IPO, right? It's not for everybody. There's still going to be investors that say, I'm not going to stick my cash in a trust and wait around for a year. That's not my business model. But it is starting to look closer and closer to what a traditional IPO might otherwise look like. If we don't capture all of the investors in the actual stack IPO, the point in time that looks very much like a traditional IPO is when we go and raise the stack pipe. Again, this is an area that has really, really shifted over the last, call it 12 to 18 months. You know, pipes used to take 10 to 12 weeks. You know, we used to canvas the globe, incredibly slow process. A lot of time educating investors around what a stack was, what a pipe was. You know, you fast forward to today, investors are very actively reaching out to us and saying, please call us on your pipes, please call us on your stacks. The product feels much more institutionalized in terms of understanding of product, understanding of process, willingness to hold a pipe, which is in a liquid security for some amount of time. But when we actually go and raise that pipe, it really does look like your traditional IPO. So we have, you know, big mutual funds, big hedge funds that are participating. And like I said, it really is the opportunity for a company to curate their shareholder base a little bit more as you would in a traditional IPO process. So certain industries have obviously seen more activity than others. Some of the hotspots were tech, healthcare, ESG related SPACs. Do you think those sectors will continue to see the bulk of the activity or are there other industries on the radar that may start seeing pick up in activity? Yeah, I think it is going to be concentrated in those areas. And that's not surprising. I mean, at the end of the day, the companies that are coming public via SPAC are companies that should be in the public markets. And not surprising when we think about the overall US markets, the markets are dominated by both tech and healthcare IPOs. So it's not surprising that SPACs are mimicking the overall US backlog. ESG is probably the one area that deviates a little bit from what we see in the traditional IPO market. And there clearly are a very long list of ESG companies, some who are a little bit earlier stage for the traditional IPO process. But those companies are clearly partnering with SPAC, so we expect that to continue. The one other area that I think is seeing increasing traction is you know, what I would call property technology, property tech, where we've seen a handful of SPACs come out with that focus area. And we expect that we'll see a little bit more in that area this year. But overall, anything with that kind of tech overlay, whether it's pure tech, healthcare tech, auto tech, property tech, those are the areas that we expect to be incredibly busy this year. So most of last year, SPAC, which has a particularly American twang to it, was a U.S. product. But we did see a few European SPACs in Q4. Do you think the product will have global appeal or is it going to be primarily focused in the American market? Yeah, we have seen a couple of European SPACs. We've also seen a couple of SPACs that are focused on Asia and in China in particular. You know, my view is that that is going to continue. It's hard to ignore the success that the product has had in the U.S. on a global reach. And so while there haven't been as many, there certainly are some. And we do think that 
for the right situation, right? These stacks ultimately are listed in the US market. So we need to find companies that belong in the US markets. But I do think we're going to see more of these European SPACs, Asian SPACs, even LATAM SPACs that are chasing the opportunity because there are plenty of great companies across the globe that would ultimately end up in the US markets. Yeah, I think the real question is that the market in Europe is different than the market in the US in terms of the SPAC rules in particular as it relates to redemption rights. The U.S. market has redemption rights. The European market does not. And so I think the key question this year will be if there is innovation in the U.S. markets to enable SPACs to list in their home market, so SPACs to list in Europe and actually take companies public in Europe as opposed to having to move them into the U.S. market. So it's a long way of saying, yes, we expect traction. And we also you know, are working and thinking about evolution in the home markets themselves. So the product itself with all this activity has started to evolve and we've seen some innovation in the product of a SPAC. Corporate SPACs in particular emerged towards the end of last year. Talk a little bit about that product and what need it serves in the marketplace today. Yeah, the corporate SPAC is really interesting. I don't think it's for everybody. It's certainly complicated. It involves conflict. It requires a lot of board scrutiny. But that being said, I think it's incredibly interesting for some companies. And I do think it's going to pick up as we think about what's been done and what's out there. We certainly see this as an area of growth in the market this year. The reason I think it's really interesting is that it's a way for companies to pursue transactions or deals that have a strategic overlay, right? That have some type of synergy between their own business and this other business that they may be transacting with. But it's not ultimately a company or a deal that belongs on the corporate balance sheet. It wouldn't be a natural merger target. It wouldn't be a natural acquisition target, either because it deviates from a core business or from a multiples perspective, it doesn't work. But where there's a clear synergy in these two businesses belonging together. And I really like that as I think about a lot of the SPACs, and there's nothing wrong with these SPACs, but I think a lot of the SPACs that are out there, it's really more of a financial transaction. I think the corporate SPAC is really interesting because it does bring something operational, strategic to the table. And so as a company thinks about its options, and one option is, hey, it could be a SPAC where there's a financial partner or another where there's really kind of that strategic angle, I think it makes a compelling argument for these corporate SPACs to be able to engage in and execute transactions. You know, the last thing I would say is many companies run big venture investing arms. And to be able to execute a venture strategy, but in a manner where you have a promote associated with it, you know, for, for some companies that promote won't be big enough to move the needle. For others, it could be very meaningful. So Overall, I think this is a super interesting strategy for some companies and absolutely expect that it's going to continue to gain traction. So we saw a lot of innovation on SPACs last year. We at Goldman debuted a new IPO platform. Obviously, there were direct listings still, some really big ones. A lot of creativities and structures in being able to tailor solutions for different clients in the equity capital markets. Is this a new era in capital markets more broadly? Just a lot more innovation than we've seen in the past? And what's driving it? I think it is. I think we're at a moment in time where companies and investors have and want more options. The traditional IPO path is going to be the path that most companies take. But I think people want, you know, depending on objectives, right? Every company has a different set of objectives. And depending on those objectives, 
there are now more and more paths to achieve those objectives. And so I think as companies and boards really kind of try and figure out what's important to them, is it, you know, is it speed to market? Is it control over pricing? Is it greater control over allocations? Is it the traditional research process? All of those elements. Is it finding a stack that has a halo and weighing all the costs of these options? I really do think that these options are creating, you know, what you said, a new era in the capital markets. Like I said, I think the IPO is really the backbone, and all of these products are really just different innovations on the IPO itself. The stack is really bringing a company public, and we're just doing it in a different way. I think we're going to see a lot of innovation with stacks themselves over the next 12 to 24 months. The market is becoming more competitive and these stacks are going to have to become more competitive in order to appeal to these companies. But overall, like this is to me, you know, this is going to be a really, really interesting period. As I said before, I mean, 250 stacks could execute upon $500 billion of transactions. Now I think the jury's out on if there are that many companies to transact with, but it's certainly going to make for an interesting and very busy next couple of years. And I think from an investor perspective, it's a really interesting time. I mean, there are different ways to invest in these companies and different ways that these companies are coming public. And so it's been really, really interesting to work with our investing partners around how we tailor these processes to work for both sides. All right, Olympia. Well, thanks for that thorough review of the SPAC landscape. We'll have you back later in the year to see how it's going. Great. Thanks so much for having me. That concludes this episode of Exchanges Goldman Sachs. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And tune in later in the week for our weekly markets update where leaders around the firm give a quick take on what they're watching in the markets. This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, January 6th in the year 2021. Thanks for listening. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.